The views, information, or opinions expressed during AOA broadcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the American Academy of Allergic Allergy, its employees, or members. The AOA is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy any of the information contained in and assumes no liability for any activities in connection with this broadcast. The primary purpose of this broadcast series is to educate and inform and does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. Advertising which is incorporated into, placed and associated with, or targeted toward the content of this product without express approval and acknowledgement of the AOA is forbidden. These broadcasts are available for private, non-commercial use only and may not be edited or modified from their original form or reproduced for distribution. Welcome and thank you for listening. My name is Jennifer Vilwak. I'm an otolaryngologist at the University of Kansas, and I'm also a fellow of the American Academy of Otolaryngic Allergy. I'm joined today by Dr. Bill Reisacker, and we're going to have a conversation about food allergy, focusing on a lot of the questions that not only we've had during our training, but that were commonly asked by patients in our clinic, and some best practices and what to expect moving forward. Well, hi. Uh, my name is Bill Reisacker. I am uh, on the faculty at Well Cornell Medical College in New York City, and my practice is uh, general otolaryngology, but I treat food allergy. That's a big part of my practice. It's also a big part of my life. I've uh, grown up severely peanut allergic, so I've had to uh, deal with a lot of things growing up, and it's definitely shaped the way I view food allergies, the way I uh, treat patients, and I'm uh, very interested in that and, uh, and the directions that food allergies are, are taking in our world. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us today, Dr. Reisacker. And I'm glad that you have such a wealth of experience with food allergy because it's something that we hear about in the news all the time. But I think a lot of folks don't necessarily know what it is. So can you explain to us what is a true food allergy? That's a great question, Jen. So what is a true food allergy? True food allergy is one where you actually have clinical symptoms when consuming that food. Now, that's different from a sensitization. Uh, there's many of us who are walking around with sensitizations to foods. In other words, we have antibodies in our blood, for example, that can recognize those foods. But if we eat it in just a normal amount, it's going to cause absolutely no problems. Uh, so if you can detect those antibodies, you're sensitized. But if you have no problems eating it, you're not allergic. Okay. So what I'm hearing is it sounds like if we had a way to test for those antibodies which hopefully you can tell us if we do or not, just because they're positive doesn't necessarily mean that you need to eliminate those foods. That's exactly right. Just because you test positive does not mean you have to avoid it. And that's also the problems we see with our testing, how they're so sensitive, but they're not very specific because they're picking up people who are both sensitized as well as allergic. And uh, that's a good argument for really testing only those patients who you're very suspicious of a food allergy and also testing as specifically as possible, uh, avoiding large food panels uh, that'll cover foods that they're not even concerned about. You might pick up sensitivities, and then, then you're faced with the dilemma. What do you do when you have that sensitivity? Do you tell the person to avoid that food if they've been eating it all along? Do you have them eat less of it? What do you do? So it creates a confusing situation, both for the patients and for their physicians. Mm -hmm. So if we can't just use a shotgun approach to testing for antibodies, then or how would a parent know if their child truly does have a food allergy? Well, I think there's always that level of concern where, uh, where their child is having some sort of a problem and they're not really sure what is causing it. Many times they've heard about food allergies in the news or they've talked to their friend and they've heard a lot about food allergies and they come in with that concern. And I think our job as clinicians is to really try to dig in and take a, a good history, get as much information as we can from the parent, 
and from uh, the patient, from the child even, and find out whether or not there is a high suspicion for food allergy in that case. Uh, and if it does seem like there is a high probability of that, I try to test as specifically as possible and really try to drill down into the foods that they're actually consuming. Mm-hmm. There would be really no point in testing a food that they don't consume very often. Sure. And I think most of us have heard you know, about anaphylaxis or kind of a whole body systemic allergic reaction. But what types of symptoms are your patients coming to you with saying, hey, my child eats this. This, this doesn't seem like it should be happening after they eat it. At what point are you as their clinician saying, okay, we need to test you or further investigate this? Well, the the cluster of symptoms that you can get from food allergy does range very widely. Of course, you can have uh, anaphylactic reactions, which are the most severe reactions. And I can speak about that personally, having experienced a few anaphylactic reactions to peanuts. I know how it feels. It's not pleasant, by the way. And it can range from some respiratory symptoms, some uh, skin symptoms, or it can be just gastrointestinal symptoms, some swelling in the, in the mouth or in the throat, or some bloating in the stomach. So it's always important to maintain a real high index of suspicion when considering testing for foods. And when we think about allergies that you hear a lot about on the news nowadays, specifically things like milk and gluten and peanuts, are all of those true allergies? So are all those uh, allergies true allergies that you hear about in the news, egg and milk and potentially wheat? There's a lot of information out there, and some of it is true allergy, but some of it is not, but it's definitely explainable by science. For example, bloating in the, in the stomach, that can oftentimes be, uh, be triggered off by wheat products, but it's not due to an allergy to the wheat. It can be due to the bacteria that are in your intestines that are actually digesting those, those proteins and producing a lot of gas in response to that. So it can be related to foods, though it's not a sensitivity. And it can be a very difficult uh, job uh, of us as clinicians to really separate that out. Because once patients come to you and they think they have an allergy, they've been told by their friend and their doorman that, that they have allergies, it's really hard to redirect them and say, no, you don't exactly have an allergy. Maybe this is something else. So uh, it's very important to to really approach it cautiously and be very sensitive to those issues when trying to counsel your patients. As we think about food allergies, you know, kind of across the span of someone's life, what's the likelihood that as if, say, you're a kid and you're allergic to XYZ food, is there any way to encourage that child to, quote unquote, grow out of those allergies or to decrease the likelihood that they'll develop them at all? Well, thankfully, in terms of outgrowing allergies, many of the food allergies are outgrown. Even uh, by the age of six, uh, we see uh, the majority of allergies to eggs and and milk uh, are outgrown, which is great. Some of the other allergies, um, unfortunately, like peanut, uh, has a much less likelihood of being outgrown. Only about 20% of of kids will outgrow that food allergy. Sadly, I was not in that 20% uh, group, so it's continued until adulthood. So it's important to also retest and see if the sensitivity is decreasing and counseling the patients and their parents about the likelihood of it outgrowing over time. But some recent data has also come out that has shown that food allergies are much higher in incidence even in the adult population than previously thought. It was thought that maybe under 5% of adults were allergic to foods, but now it seems like that might actually be double that amount. And another surprising finding from some of the recent data is that it's a very much more common phenomenon 
that adults will actually acquire their food allergy as adults and not have them as children that then proceeded into adulthood, but about 50% of adults with food allergies develop them as an adult. So it's never too late to come into the, uh, the doctor's office and ask about that. And if you think that you're one of these people that maybe has developed a new food allergy, is there a quote-unquote best way to test for a food allergy? Well, in terms of testing for food allergies, there are different ways to go about it. There's uh, skin testing and there's uh, blood testing, which can be done, and even testing in the, in the locally symptomatic area. And that's really up to the clinician. There are pros and cons of each of those. And that clinician will weigh those options for very severe reactions. Oftentimes, I'll do a serum IgE testing, so I'll test the blood because it's a lot safer than testing to the skin itself. But skin testing is a very sensitive way of testing. So both modalities of, of treatment, or testing rather, are very effective at picking up food allergy. It's really just up to the situation and to the clinician's experience. And how do you normally treat food allergies? Is it you always just tell the person to avoid it, or are there ways to decrease an individual's reactivity to those foods over time? For many years, really, the, uh, the treatment has been, uh, once you have identified food allergy, particularly a severe food allergy, the treatment has been avoidance, which is a really difficult thing to do because things like peanuts are so ubiquitous in our society. Uh, it's a very scary thing. Uh, I think, uh, you know, my mother always had a heart attack every time I went to a birthday party because she was afraid that I was going to consume a, you know, a cake or a cookie that had a peanut in it. And frankly, quite often I did and, uh, you know, and developed some reactions. And thankfully, I've been very lucky. Uh, I try to carry my EpiPen with me. And, and that's the other focus besides just avoiding the foods is educating patients as well as their parents about the importance of carrying epinephrine. They have to take it with them and they have to know how to use it and when to use it. And these are all very important. Now, thankfully, on the horizon, there are some ways of potentially desensitizing an individual for their uh, allergies. Doing injections like we do for respiratory therapy is way too dangerous to do for food allergies. Uh, but potentially, there are a couple of products that are getting close to the market that could really be a game changers in terms of providing desensitization. Of course, some of those come with uh, problems in and of themselves. There's oral immunotherapy, which is already being done in a non-FDA-approved uh, fashion. And now there's a, a product which is going to probably be coming to the market within the next year, which will desensitize. It works very well. Of course, that comes with its own adverse events of consuming peanut powder uh, on its own. So that will probably be a debate uh, that will be moving forward and some other products potentially that could be coming on the market. So the horizon is very bright for food allergies. There's a lot of work being done in it right now. And hopefully we'll have some other tools in our tool belt besides just telling people to avoid that food to help desensitize them. One of the issues with desensitization, of course, is that therapy has to be continued for a very long period of time, perhaps lifelong therapy with respiratory allergies. And once you desensitize, you get your normal maintenance exposure just by being out in the world. But with foods, you have to consume it on a regular basis in order to maintain the desensitization. And that's also going to be a challenge for the new methods that are coming for desensitization. How are you going to keep people on that therapy lifelong? Are they going to want to eat a peanut every day? I'm, I can certainly tell you that I have an aversion to peanuts uh, with the taste and the smell, and I certainly wouldn't want to eat a peanut every day. So that's going to be some really tough issues that need to be tackled moving forwards. And then lastly, 
sometimes I'll hear from my own patients, oh, I have one child that is peanut allergic and I have another child who does not seem to be peanut allergic. Is there anything that we should be doing to help prevent that second child from getting a peanut allergy? Sometimes, you know, they'll mention they've seen on the online message boards basically cheesy poofs but are made out of peanuts instead to give to the, to the other child. How do you approach that conversation with the patients in your practice, and is that a recommendation that you currently make? Well, in terms of uh, one sibling, for example, who is allergic to peanuts, and then, you know, what do you do with the other sibling? And the first question I ask is, are they eating peanuts already? And then are you going to introduce it? Many parents will be very concerned about introducing peanuts to the second child when the first one has already had the problem, although the recommendations are to start feeding the child peanuts at, a, at an early age, between four to six months, um, you know, in a form that they can eat, of course. Of course, not whole peanuts. Not whole peanuts, of course. You know, you wouldn't want that. Uh, generating more business for us as ENTs, but not in a way that, that we would like. So in a, either in a peanut butter fashion or with those puffs that have uh, peanuts uh, in them. So it's not recommended empirically if one child is allergic to just withhold from the other child. Also with testing, it's not really recommended to test unless there's some sort of a suspicion. Although many parents will opt for that first, just doing some testing and seeing if there's a sensitivity. The other issue with having uh, peanuts in the household is that if you have a, a, one sibling who's eating peanuts and the other one who's severely allergic, if you have peanut in the household and it's being consumed, it's going to be present in areas like the house dust that's in the house. So potentially you could be giving the, the allergic child a sensitivity. So that's one argument for actually keeping peanuts out of the household, but maybe not restricting the other child who's not allergic from eating them, maybe having them just eat it at school or, or some other place, but not bringing it in the household itself. So any final thoughts on the topic of food allergy, especially as it relates to children? Well, I think the take-home message here is that there's a lot more research going on and there's really an expanded repertoire of therapies that are going to be available in the future. Um, I think we're going to see that for multiple different foods and we're going to see also different methods of desensitizing. So I think it's going to be a lot easier for parents and for, and for kids moving forward who are allergic. Uh, they're going to have a lot more options and also being educated about carrying epinephrine is the number one treatment. So that is, that is a huge focus in, in finding a way to keep kids carrying epinephrine. And there's even been some ways now of, of delivering epinephrine that are creative and uh, ways of carrying epinephrine that are also creative. I've seen it uh, designed in, in jewelry and in bracelets and other ways so you don't have to find a place to, to put a big EpiPen. There's much easier ways of delivering the, the epinephrine and, and carrying it. Great. So Dr. Reisacker, for those that are looking for additional information or just more educational resources, where would you recommend that they look? Well, I think there's certain uh, organizations. FAIR is one of them, Food Allergy Research Education, which uh, provides a lot of information. The American Academy of Otolaryngic Allergy, of course, will provide a lot of information about food allergies. So you know, please visit the AAOA website and find out more. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Jen. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you.